So we've been talking about um, a walk of faith, and we're talking again about the walk of faith today. Uh, you know, there are a lot of times we talk about faith, and immediately, oftentimes, our mind goes to healing people or doing miraculous things or performing some kind of uh, outstanding demonstration of God's power. But the walk of faith is just as important as all of these other things. And so we're going to talk today about a walk of faith and uh, perhaps encourage you in your walk. Now, there's two aspects of faith that I see. One is the walk of faith and one is the works of faith. And I think if you if you're, look at Scripture, there actually has to be a walk of faith before there can be works of faith. And many of us want to do the works of faith without walking in faith. And so uh, I want to encourage you today about walking in faith. The first image that comes to mind when I think of walking in faith is Peter. Walking on the water. Now Jesus had been ministering to the multitudes and after he finished that day, he told his disciples, I want you to go get in the boat and I want you to go to the other side of the lake and, and I'm going to just take some time out. I just need to refresh myself with my father. And so he went up on the mountain and started praying. Then while, while he was praying, there was a big storm that came up over the Sea of Galilee. It frightened children, uh, these, uh, these disciples. To I mean, they just didn't know what to do. They thought they were going to capsize. They thought they were going to drown. And all of a sudden, they see something coming across the waters. And some guy had to yell, there's a ghost. And somebody else says, no, it's Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, if that is you, command me to get out of the boat and come to you. So Jesus said, it's me. Come on, jump out of that boat and walk to me. So we could pick up with that passage of Scripture in verse 27. It says, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go see Jesus. Isn't that incredible? He walked on the water to go see Jesus. But, there's always a but. Sometimes there's a but. But, when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And he began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you die? When they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I'm sure all of us have been in situations in our life when the storm is raging all around us. We feel as if we're going to drown. And we realize that if the Lord didn't assist us, 
the Lord didn't help us, there's not going to be any hope. Uh, Peter, he did a wise thing. He cried out to Jesus. He cried out to Jesus. Oftentimes, when we get in terrible situations, we just want to try to row out of the storm by ourselves. Oftentimes, when the storm comes, we don't turn to Jesus. We just buckle down and just do the best we can to, to make it through. But what Peter is showing us here is that there's hope, there's help in Jesus. And so as we come before him, when we find ourselves drowning, have you, how many of you have ever felt that way? When you find yourself, feel yourself drowning, there's one person you can call upon, and his name is Jesus, and he will always, 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 always be there. He will never forsake you. He will never fail you. He will never reach out his hand and lift you up. He says his hand is not too short that it can't reach down. Peter learned that lesson. And do you know what? And even though Peter, in his life, he stumbled, you know the stories where he stumbled and he denied Jesus three times. And, and even Paul kind of had to reprimand him one time for eating with the Jews when he should have been eating with the Gentiles. And, and Peter stumbled, but he kept getting back up. And he kept going forward. And he finished strong. <clears throat> I want us to look at a few individuals this morning who finished strong. John, John the Baptist, now listen, John the Baptist was looked upon as an idiot. He really was. And a lot of people thought he was a madman because he wore camel's hair. I, that had to be uncomfortable. He wore camel's hair, and, he ate, and his favorite feed, food was locusts and wild honey. And people thought, man, that guy's crazy. But did you know there's a lot of prophets that people thought were crazy? They thought John the Baptist was crazy, but Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now listen, John the Baptist never performed any miraculous signs. He never healed anyone. He never raised anyone from the dead. He just was faithful. Day after day after day after day, he was just faithful to walk with the Lord. And Jesus said, Elijah wasn't greater than him. Elisha wasn't greater than him. Jeremiah wasn't greater than him. Isaiah wasn't greater than him. There was no one born that was greater than John the Baptist. And all he did was walk in faith. That's all he did is just walk in faith. He just walked in faith. He just did what God told him to do and was obedient to what the Lord said. No one greater than John the Baptist. Now, Abraham was called the father of faith. <clears throat> What miraculous things did he do? Did he raise anybody from the dead? No, he didn't heal any sick. He had some battles he had to fight. He had some prayers that he prayed. But God said the reason he's the father of faith is because he believes what God told him. 
He believed what God told him, and he walked in it. He's the poster child of faith. Did he always get it right? He, He missed a few steps. Okay? He went to Egypt. His wife was beautiful. He told the, his wife said, tell tell everybody you're my sister and not my wife. Because if they know you're my wife, they're going to kill me and they're going to take you as their wife. So please, I don't want you to say anything about you being my wife. And Sarah, being an obedient, submissive wife, said, okay, hubby, I will do what you say. He messed up a few times. He had a child by his wife's servant. Would you say he messed up a few times? I, I would say he messed up a few times. And yet, God says he's the father of the faithful. Now listen, in our walk, it's possible, probable, that you're going to mess up a few times. You're going to stumble a few times. You're going to make the wrong decision sometimes. And it's going to bring some shame. And it's going to bring some heartache into your life. But did you know what? God can rectify that. God can turn that around when you start walking the way he intends for you to walk. One of the things Abraham chose to believe God And because he chose to trust God and chose to walk with him, God blessed Abraham with eternal treasures. There were some earthly treasures that he gave to Abraham as well, but I want you to understand there were eternal treasures that far outshone the earthly treasures. And the temporary treasures that Abraham had, eternal treasures. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want to be one of those people whom God can trust with his resources. Particularly, his eternal resources. His eternal treasures. I want to be one of those kind of people who God can trust and is willing to Give to me his eternal treasures. But in order to do that, I have to walk in faith. I have to step out in faith. I have to walk close to God. And here's what I understand. If I'm faithful to his word, God will be faithful to me with his eternal treasures. And if I'm faithful to his word, I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry about if the stock market goes up or down. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about if I get hamburger this year or not. I don't have to worry about that because God's going to be faithful to me as I am faithful to him and he will pour out his treasures upon me because that's who he is. So I want to encourage you I don't know where you are in your life right now. I don't know if you've got a storm going on right now in your life. But if you do, I'm just going to encourage you. Keep pressing on and cry out to Jesus. 
Don't quit. Don't quit. I read a story a few weeks ago of a fellow named John Coulter by Steve. Uh, it was told by Steve Farrar in his book, Finishing Strong. <clears throat> I'd like to share that with you. And, and I'm going to have to, he tells the story so vividly and so well, I'm going to just read it rather than trying to rehash it. Only two men failed to return from the storied Lewis and Clark expedition of the early 1800s. One man failed to return because he got sick and died. The other man failed to return because he was smitten by the landscape. He had just seen the length and breadth of what would day, one day become the United States of America. From the Great Plains of the Rockies to the Columbia Basin of Oregon to the Pacific Ocean. His young eyes drank in what white man had never seen in the vast wonders of an unexplored continent. Gripped his soul. So when Lewis and Clark set out for home, John Coulter waved them goodbye. He stayed on to explore the wide lands that were the, on the other side of the scope of the expedition. He wanted to follow some of these trails and paddle some of these rivers he had passed by on the way to the Pacific. He wanted to hunt in their wild beauty. Coulter trapped beaver in the virgin streams of the high country. He was the first white man to witness the geysers of Yellowstone. The young man's love affair with uncharted lands kept him in constant danger. Close encounters with monster grizzlies, churning whitewater rapids, and always dangerous Indians tested his courage, pluck, and reflexes. As years went by, he gained a legendary status among his fellow trappers and mountain men, men not easily impressed. But the accomplishment that sealed Coulter's reputation as a living legend wasn't a battle with a grizzly, shooting rapids in a fragile canoe, or scaling an unknown mountain range. John Coulter was best known for a single foot race. It was a race that would be told and retold around campfires from the Columbia to the Missouri. John Coulter had run like no man in history had run before. It may have been because he was running for his life. <clears throat> Coulter had been trapping a particular stream with John Potts, an old friend from the Lewis and Clark expedition. As they were canoeing down a stretch of river not far from what today is Bozeman, Montana, they heard some rustling in the bush on both sides of the riverbank. In the next instant, they were surrounded by Blackfeet Indians with drawn bows. There was no time for escape downstream. Coulter did the only thing he could have done. He headed for the bank. As they were getting out of the canoe, a huge Indian ran forward and snatched Potts' rifle out of his hands. Coulter, a man of great physical strength and courage, knew that, the only, that any sign of fear would only ensure their torturous death at the hands of these Blackfeet. The desperate trapper grabbed the rifle and wrestled it away from the Indian, throwing him to the ground in the process. He tossed the weapon back to Potts and turned to confront the startled warriors. Potts had seen enough and jumped into the canoe to make a getaway. No, shouted Coulter, knowing there was no escape in that direction. Arrows rained into the canoe, killing Potts. The current swept the canoe and their body of Coulter's friend downstream. Coulter himself stood on the bank, unarmed and alone. The Blackfeet swarmed around him, stripped him naked, 
then tied him down as they had a pow, held a powwow trying to determine what they would do to him. Skin him alive. No, let's whip him to death. Let's burn him alive. Then one of the black feet came up with a creative idea. The chief approached Coulter and asked him if he could run like a deer. Coulter indicated that he was not as fast as the deer, but slow as the turtle. This was a lie. Coulter was remarkably fast runner. The chief, however, took the bait with a grin and quickly everyone quickly led everyone to a nearby sandy plain. He made a mark and his warrior started. I'm sorry, in his let's see, I'm missing a word. And he made he, he made a mark, and his, and his warriors towed the line. He then took Coulter and gave him a 300-yard head start. The buck-naked Coulter took off like a shot. Except for moccasins, clothes, the pursuing black feet were as naked as Coulter. But in each, carried his favorite weapon and yearned for the honor of the finishing off of the white trapper. The plane stretched ahead of Coulter for six miles, dotted only by... Um, briars, and prickly pear. Shimmering on the horizon, Coulter could see a line of trees of what must have been a bend of the river. He focused on the trees and began to run of his life. Coulter's bare feet were soon cut to bloody ribbons by the sharp stones and prickly pear, but in the race there was no stopping. One mile sped by, two miles, at approximately three miles, Coulter looked back over his shoulder. He could no longer hear the yelling of his pursuers or the slap of their moccasins in the dust. Only a handful were still in the hunt, and they were a good distance away. One solitary brave, however, had closed in within 200 yards. Coulter's body was so stressed from the exertion of the chase that blood trickled from his nose and mouth. At four miles, Coulter looked back again, the Indian with the protective moccasins on his feet had gained a lot of ground and less than 50 yards away. Coulter knew his broad, naked back was in range of the Indian's sharp lance. Without warning, the hunted man suddenly whirled and stopped, facing the onrushing Indian and throwing his hands straight up in the air as if surrendering. The shocked Indian immediately threw his lance, and as it left his hand, he stumbled and fell, held over heels. The lance fell short. Coulter grabbed it and plunged it into his pursuer before the exhausted Indian could regain his footing. Coulter drove the lance into the Indian with such force that the brave was pinned to the ground to die by his own weapon. Summoning every ounce of strength he had left, Coulter ran the remaining mile or so to the river and the stand of timber. Out in the middle of the stream, there was a sandbar, and at the head of this little island was a large raft of drifting driftwood which had come down with the spring floods. Coulter swam out of the raft, dove beneath it, and came up where several of the entangled logs formed a roof above his head. Here he waited for the pursuing black feet up to his neck in the icy waters under his makeshift shelter. He soon heard the approaching black feet who swam around the river, swarmed around the river onto the sandbar and even stood upon the logs that covered Coulter's head, but they couldn't find him. That terrible day, however, was still young 
and the Blackfeet were wild to avenge the death of their comrade. They kept up the hunt until late afternoon before finally withdrawing. Under cover of darkness, John Coulter swam downstream until he found a tiny stretch of bank concealed by trees and brush. Naked, half frozen, and nearly delirious from exposure and loss of blood, Coulter pulled himself out of the stream and lay gasping on the bank. He had no rifle, no food, no fire, no horse, no shoes, and no clothing. He had been stripped of everything, everything but his will to live. John Coulter was half dead and 150 miles away from the trading post at Bighorn. Yet seven days later, he walked naked, bleeding and hungry into the Bighorn compound. And in that moment, he became a living legend. Isn't that uh, awesome? Stripped of everything and against the worst odds imaginable, John Coulter outran and outsmarted the pursuing Blackfeet for 156 miles in spite of everything he managed to finish the course. Isn't that incredible? It's an incredible story. <clears throat> I, you know, I read that story and I think, man, I want to I be like that. I want to finish the course. I want to finish strong. Uh, Joseph was a fellow who, you remember in the Bible, he, he was one of 12 children. He was favored by his dad. He was, he had been given a colorful coat, a multicolored coat uh, from his dad because he was the favorite. He didn't give any of the other boys one of those coats. And, and, and jealousy began to rage in the hearts of the brothers. And not only that, Joseph had some dreams and he began to sharing these, share these dreams with his brothers. Uh, and the dreams were that one day you're going to bow down to me and you're going to worship me or you're going to serve me. And, and they didn't like that. And not only did ang uh, jealousy form in their heart, but also hatred and bitterness and resentment. And so one day the boys had gone to Dothan to, to feed sheep. They hadn't heard, uh, dad, Jacob, hadn't heard from the boys in some time. And so he was kind of concerned about them. And he said to Joseph, Joseph, I want you to go and I want you to check on my boys. And so Joseph went and finally found them in Dothan. He thought they were one place, and, but he happened to be someplace else. And when he got to within range of their sight, the boy said, oh, here comes Joseph. This is our opportunity. It's payback time. And so when Joseph got there, they threw him in a pit. And then later deciding, no, we can get some money from him. So a, a, a band of Ishmaelites came by on, on the road. And so they pulled him out of the pit and they sold Joseph into slavery. I'm trying to think how Joseph would have felt about this time. I'm sure he felt fearful. But throughout the story, we never see Joseph getting angry at his brothers. We never see him holding an offense toward his brothers. So these Ishmaelites take Joseph to Egypt, sell him to a fellow named Potiphar. And Potiphar is, is prosperous during Joseph's tenure there as his servant. Everything that Joseph put his hand to prospered. 
And he was becoming quite wealthy because of Joseph's oversight of all everything that he had. Well, one day there was his wife, uh, Potiphar's wife, she had kept her eye on Joseph because he was a good-looking dude and tried to uh, entice him into her bedroom and have some relationships with him. And, and Joseph, being the man of God he was, did not fall into that temptation. But rather, he ran out of her room, and in doing so, she grabbed his coat and left his coat behind. And she accused him. His husband, her husband came home, and she said, you're... That servant, that Hebrew that you brought into our home tried to rape me, and I here's his coat. False accusation. And he got steaming. He got mad, of course. And so he had Joseph thrown into prison. But you know, Joseph never did get angry, it doesn't appear, at the wife, Potiphar. Anyway, he just kept doing, kept believing, kept walking kept stepping where God would have him step, kept trusting that God had a plan for his life. Regardless of the pit that they had thrown him into, regardless of the slavery that they had caused to come upon his life, regardless of the prison that he was in, he kept trusting the Lord. If you know the story, he was able to get out of prison in a few years and uh, interpret a the Pharaoh's dream, and Joseph became second over all the land of Israel. I'm sorry, it's Egypt. Thank you, Jake. Over all the land of Egypt. And that would have been a great opportunity to take his vengeance out on Potiphar's wife. He could have easily because everybody did what Joseph commanded. That would have been a great opportunity. And eventually, you know the story, his brothers came into Egypt wanting to buy food because there was famine all over the place. And Joseph sold them the food. This would have been a great opportunity. Now, he did test them to see if their hearts had turned, to see if they were still the same brothers that had left them, uh, that had sold them to Egypt, what, uh, 15 years before or somewhere in that neighborhood. And he tested them, but he did not carry bitterness. He did not carry anger toward them. He kept trusting the Lord even when the storms came. He kept trusting the Lord even when the battles came. Sometimes, sometimes, It seems like everything goes against us. No matter what we do, it just goes against us. Abraham finished strong. Peter finished strong. John the Baptist finished strong. Joseph finished strong. Paul finished strong. Listen to this. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, Paul tells Timothy, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all of those who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul, looked, Paul saw his Christian walk 
as a fight. He said, I've seen, I, I, I fought a good fight. I fought a good fight. And I don't know, you know, I, I try to picture in my mind if he's talking about a wrestling match. Or if he's talking about a, a boxing match. But I think it's more like a cage fight. I really do. I think it's more like a cage fight because he was beat. He was stoned. He was, but, he, and, but he just kept coming back. He just kept coming back. No matter how many people tried to dissuade him, nobody, no matter how many people tried to trip him up, no matter what people did to him, he just kept coming back. He just kept coming back. He just kept coming back. Because he walked in faith. Many of you have been in a battle. You feel knocked down. You feel bashed. You feel bruised. You've been, you feel beat up. You may feel like, what's the use? You may feel like quitting. But God. Paul would not have been able to do what he did without God. Joseph would not have been able to do what he did without God. No one without God can endure the things that these individuals endured. It was a walk of faith. It was a fight of faith. And sometimes we have to fight with everything in us. We have to fight. We, ha we can't just be complacent. You say, oh, well, you know, I'm sure things will work out. Or I'm sure things won't. You know, I like Joseph, and I'm wondering, okay, he was, Joseph in prison could have gone into despair. Joseph in prison could have gone into depression. Joseph in prison could have gone into anger. Joseph in prison could have gone into sorrow. He could have gone into self-pity. Woe is me. Why is the world treating me like this? Nobody has ever gone through the things I've gone through. I need somebody, I need to cry on somebody's shoulder. But what he did is he looked up and he remembered the promises of God. That's all he had to go on. That's all he had to go on were the promises of God. Paul endured a lot. Peter was drowning. He cried out to Jesus. Did you know that Jesus said it never did say it would be easy? I've told you before, and I share this with you again. I, every week, practically, I talk to a fellow who's incarcerated in Mississippi uh, for, well, he's on death row. He's been there for about 28 years now. And uh, anyway, I talk with him on the phone, and I would like for you to pray for him. So, the prison system in Mississippi is not like it is in Oregon. 
The prison system in Mississippi is, is it's horrible. Uh, they, they're on death row. Uh, he and about three others on death row are now Christians. And when they get their food, it may be molded. It may, the beans are sour. Beans are rotten. And yet, that's what they have. Now, this young man, I'd say young man, he's in his 40s now, uh, is, he's able, because after he came to know Christ and his, his attitude changed, he's now able to get out of his cell two days a week and do some cleaning in the hallways and stuff, okay? Uh, for 27 years, he was in a eight by 10 cell. Now he's able to get out. But the problem is this. Every day he goes by the kitchen and he sees these guys who are fixing their food. And he says, I can handle the problem. I can take care of these guys in my way. But I want to do it God's way. What do I do? Scripture says, and I shared this with him, Scripture says, do good to those who do evil to you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. He said, man, I never thought about praying for them. Because here's the thing, and it, it dawned on me while I was talking to him. He said, I, I, the kitchen, I'm sure, is filthy. And, and I was, I was talking to him, I, was, I told him this, and I think it was from the Lord. I said, you remember when the demoniac, uh, Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac, and they said, cast us into the pigs? I've often wondered, why do they want to cast him into the pigs? And and I'm thinking, and I spoke this to him, I think because pigs are filthy and demons are filthy too. And they just like to be around filth. And so what you're battling is, the scripture says, we don't battle against flesh and blood. And you know, oftentimes people are our problems, right? But Jesus said, or Paul said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, your fight is not against people. Your fight is against the demons that they're packing, right? And so your fight is not against flesh and blood. Your fight is against principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. So I told him to start praying for these individuals in the kitchen. He said, would you help me? Would you pray too? I said, yes, I pray too. So I've been praying for him ever since Wednesday night and praying for this and invite you to pray with him too. I want to see a transformation in that prison system. His name is Blade. His name is Blade. So if you would pray for Blade, okay? When he was a younger man, he was into drugs and different things and did some things that now he's on death row. And he understands, I, I mean, he tells me, I put myself here. But things can get better. But I just encourage you, would you just join me in prayer for Blake? And for these people in the kitchen, that God would remove the demons from them and so that they could see the light.
he's on a faith walk. He's learning to walk in faith. He's been a Christian about a year now. Uh, but it's a struggle, of course. Uh, though Joseph was imprisoned for nothing he did, uh, Blade understands he's in prison for something I mean, accurately right. Uh, and he, he could be facing death any day, but he just wants to be faithful for however long he's got. He wants to be faithful to the Lord. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let's run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So I want you to listen. You're surrounded by a huge cloud of witnesses in the heavenlies. You're also surrounded by a group of people who love you. If you listen closely, you can almost hear the heavenly voices cheering you on. Don't stop. Don't quit. Keep on going. It's worth it. Never give up. Go church. Go church. Go church. This passage of scripture that we need to strip down to remove anything that hinders your race. And this means you will need to discard or combat the mind, the games of the enemy. This means you will need to put Jesus first in your life. This means that your pet sins will need to be discarded. This means that whatever sins you do in secret must come to an end. This means you must become an overcomer and not be overcome. This means becoming one with a warrior mentality. No one is going to steal my joy. Nothing is going to steal my peace. No one is going to make me respond in any way other than love. Nothing my children do, nothing my spouse does, nothing my parents do will make me do anything out of anger or judgmentalism or fear. I will be faithful to the Lord. He's the only one I need to please. I want to ask you a question in closing. Actually, a few questions. Are there things in your life that you need to discard in order, in order to run this race unhindered? Will you discard those things today? Will you lay them at the feet of Jesus? Another question. Are you here today without Jesus? Maybe you go to church and maybe you read your Bible, but but you're not walking in faith. James says, if you're not walking in faith, it's because you don't have faith. That's what he says. He says, faith without works is dead. So if you say you're a Christian, but you're not living the Christian life, and it really doesn't bother you, you just want to keep on doing what you're doing, uh, James says you're not a Christian. That's what he says, and I would agree with him. 
So are you here today without Jesus? And you know you need to repent and place your faith in Him, your trust in Him, and you need to give Him your life, then this invitation is for you. Perhaps today you're like Peter and you feel like you're drowning. And you may be coming up for your last breath. Would you cry out to Jesus today and just tell him, Jesus, I need you. Lay everything down. Quit depending upon yourself. The storm's raging around you. Jesus is there to help you, and he's the only one who can save you. Others of you may feel like you're in a battle for your life, and you realize it's, only hopeless, it's hopeless without Jesus. He is your hope. He is your sustenance. I want to ask you a question. What are you trusting in if it's not the Lord? Because you're trusting in something. So what is it? As we stand together and as our worship team comes up, I'm going to ask you, as you stand, if there are some things that you need prayer for, just make your way to the front so that we can pray over you, pray for you, because God is near. God wants to help you. Uh, Jesus is here to, uh, to help you. That's why he came to this earth. Let's stand together. Father, we give you the praise and the glory and the honor for what you're doing. And God, I pray that you would just, every one of us in this congregation, you see us. Lord, we can't hide anything from you. Lord, you see us. You know us. And God, you're calling some today to have a greater, a deeper walk of faith. Lord, to finish strong. Lord, we talked about a few weeks ago about sifting and what's taking place in lives here, that you're going to be sifting people's lives. Lord, a lot of these, I look at Joseph, Lord, and you were sifting him even when he was in prison. You were sifting him while he's in slavery. And Lord, at the proper time, you raised him up. Lord, there's a lot of sifting going on, but Lord, at the proper time, we're holding on to the promises. At the proper time, you're going to raise us. And so, Lord, I just pray for this congregation, and I pray, that God, that you would do in each heart, in each life. Lord, there's some resisting you. Lord, I pray they'd put it all down. Come to you. Rest in you. Because you are a wonderful, working, marvelous, glorious God. And you want to give to us your treasures. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.